listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. Turn with me. Luke chapter 11, verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. Oh, right out of the gate, here we go. This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation." The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness." If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. You know, a fascinating thing about this passage of Scripture in verse 34 when Jesus says, when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. The word that's used there for bad is the same word that's used in verse 29 for evil, evil generation. See, back then in Roman Greco times, in this particular time, the physiology, the idea of how the body worked is a little bit different, the understanding that they had, a little bit different than what we understand today, where the eye is the receptacle of light, that there is light all around us, that your eye takes in the light and enables your brain to interpret the images and make some type of sense to it. Well, back in this day, the idea was that the eyes were literally the lamp of the body that the light within you, for better or worse, shined out of your body through your eyes, and that's what enabled you to make your way around. So when Jesus says, right here, your eye is the lamp of your body, he's speaking their language. Physiologically, biologically, they would understand what he's saying. He's speaking their language, but then Jesus puts an interesting twist to this. He begins talking about your spiritual walk with God, the spiritual walk of the people with God, their moral condition, because for some reason, as we're going to understand with more clarity, these people could not see what should have been absolutely obvious to them. And what Jesus is telling them is the reason why people You cannot recognize and appreciate what should be obvious is because you've got a sin issue. You've got darkness in who you are. And that's why your eyes are not able to behold what should be 
obvious. See, the more things change, the more they stay the same. You've got a problem, I've got a problem. The people back in Jesus' day had a problem called sin. Darkness, moral darkness on the inside. Our problem is from the inside out. And Jesus speaks their language, being the master communicator that he is, speaks their language, meets them where they are, and takes them to where they should be, but they are not, at this point, willing to go, to recognize their own sin, their own darkness, their own wickedness, the evil that is within them. That is what is prohibiting them from seeing before their very eyes what they should have been able to see. In Luke chapter 8, verse 18, Jesus said, be careful what you hear while he was teaching and preaching. And here he says, be careful what you see because it should be obvious that Jesus is who he has been saying all along he was, who the Bible presents him as, and yet these people had a problem. And what did these people want? They wanted what you and I want, whether you're a follower of Christ or whether you're not yet a follower of Christ. Again, the more things change, the more they stay the same. We want God to do one more thing, to convince us that surrender is the right choice. We want God to do just one more convincing act, one more convincing work, just do something else. Here it's said to be a sign. Do one thing more for me, Jesus, and then I will take my next steps in my walk with you. And it's a tremendous and sad reversal that has taken place where when we do that, as these people were doing it, Here is God in the flesh standing right before them, teaching, performing all of these miracles as we're going to look at in a second as we recap and summarize up to this point where Jesus is. And what are they unable to do? They're unable to acknowledge him as God. They are putting themselves in the throne, asking Jesus to perform for them as if they are the center of the universe. Haven't you noticed that We have debates with God which are ridiculous. We put out fleeces and we make it sound spiritual. I want to put out a fleece. God, if you will do this, then I will do that. Doesn't it sound absurd even to say that now? God, if you will do this, then I will do what? Take my next step with you? Oh, if only God would fill in the blank. Then I will. It sounds so backwards, doesn't it? Because by the time we get to this passage in Luke chapter 11, verse 29, look at me, look with me at all the things that Jesus has already done, just as are recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And this is not even exhaustive. This is just a sampling, tip of the iceberg, some highlights. In chapter 4, Jesus' power is being known throughout the region as he comes back from the heels of being tempted by the devil willingly giving himself to be tempted in every way. So as the book of Hebrews says, he was tempted in every way, but yet was without sin. And he comes back from that instance in chapter four of Luke's gospel, and power 
is coming out from Jesus. Also, he begins to cast out demons, not just one, but multiple demons. Also, in Luke chapter 4, he heals many people in his teaching and preaching ministry in the synagogues, the places where the Jewish people would worship, begins in Luke chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, he cleanses a leper, but he doesn't just remove the leprosy from the leper, he declares him clean, which nobody could do except the priest being a representative of God. And Jesus declares the leper clean. Then in chapter five, he heals a cripple and he pronounces the cripple's sins removed. He says, you are forgiven. Who can forgive sins except God himself? Luke chapter six, he says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. That sounds like a pretty audacious statement since God gave the last day of the week to be a day of rest to the Jewish people. And Jesus says, I am the master of that day. Who do you think you are? Hmm, interesting question, good one. In chapter six, he calls the 12. And then as we continue in Luke's gospel in chapter six, there's power to heal everybody. Power is emanating out from Jesus and everybody is healed. Also in chapter six, he teaches about love and about not having a critical spirit. So we see Jesus not only doing signs and wonders, but also being a mesmerizing teacher, helping people to understand that a critical spirit is contradictory to the plan, purpose, and will of God in your life, so get rid of it. Chapter seven, he heals a Roman leader's servant, a centurion's servant, heals the man. He resurrects a widow's son. The widow's son is dead, and Jesus raises him from the dead. Also in chapter 7, he heals many people of physical illnesses and casts out again multiple demons. In chapter 7, there's a woman who is immoral, quote unquote. The truth is that every single one of us is immoral. But this particular woman was looked down upon by the people and Jesus says, your sins, woman, are forgiven. Again, who does Jesus think he is? He has the ability to do what no mere mortal could do. He says, your sins are forgiven. In Luke chapter eight, he warns about listening to his teaching. Be careful how you hear. Also, he has power over nature. There's a raging torrent on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus speaks and the torrential storm stops. Who is this guy? How's he able to do this? That even the wind and the waves obey Jesus. This has already happened. Who is this guy in Italian? We make our hands like this and we go, hey, what's the matter for you? Who do you think you are? In Luke chapter eight, it's not just one demon or two demons or a dozen demons or a couple of dozen. It's probably between four and 8,000 demons, a legion of demons Jesus takes on. It's Jesus and a boatload full of demons and he takes care of every single one of them. He's obviously got power. He's obviously got authority. Also in Luke chapter eight, he, he perceives that power goes out of him when a woman with a longstanding medical issue touches him and he says, wait a second, I know that power has gone out from me and he raises another person from the dead. In chapter nine, he feeds not just 5,000, that's just the men. If each man had his wife with him, and each wife and husband had some children with him. With that family, there would be 
probably upwards of 10 to 15 to 20,000 people that Jesus fed in a miraculous ability with just a couple of loaves and a couple of fish, the feeding of what we call the 5,000. It was actually more than that. Chapter 9, Peter has this defining moment and says, you are the Messiah. I know who you are. I've been watching what you've been doing. I've been listening to your teachings. You are the Messiah. And then in chapter 9, Peter, James, and John see Jesus, the Son of God, glorified in the transfiguration. And then Jesus goes back and casts out more demons. And then it's not just the 12, it's the 72. As Jesus' life and ministry continues with us, momentum, he sends out 72 and they come back rejoicing and saying, even the demons in your name submit to us. Jesus is giving authority to mere mortals to advance the kingdom, the only kingdom that's going to endure forever. And then in chapter 11, he's demonstrated again by the writer of Luke's gospel to be a man of prayer and he's qualified. He's a certified expert to be able to teach us how to pray kingdom-centered, God-glorifying prayers, and that's what we see. And that's what's happened all before chapter 11. And then somebody comes along, seems to be an indication, this is a parallel with Mark chapter 8. Look with me at Mark chapter 8. In verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him. By the time we get to Mark chapter 8, similar situation. This is not Mark chapter 1. Jesus' ministry is well along. This is halfway through the gospel of Mark. The Pharisees come and begin to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. This is one of those instances in scripture where we get insight into the emotional drain of Jesus. It's the only place in the whole New Testament where that phrase is used. He sighed deeply. That's where it's used. And why did he do that? Because this is what was happening. They asked for a sign. Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And they left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. You know, interestingly enough, in Luke chapter 4, The third time that it's recorded when the devil is tempting Jesus, he takes him to the highest point in the temple, puts him on it and says, hey, I can use some scripture too. Let me give you a few scriptures here, Jesus. All you need to do is cooperate if you are really, if you are really son of God. If you're all that in a bag of Martin's potato chips. If you are who you say you are, who the Bible says you are, because the devil knew that much, why don't you throw yourself down? And I know a few scriptures too. You command your angels concerning you that you won't strike a foot against the stone. And Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6.16 puts the devil in his place, succeeds in being tempted in every way as you and I are tempted, yet was without sin. It's interesting that the devil wanted to tempt Jesus, wanted to test Jesus, wanted Jesus to perform for him. The Pharisees and the scribes wanted Jesus to perform for them. The evil generation wants Jesus to do one more for what? So then we can settle the issue of surrender. Lord, I'll serve you when. We all do it. We want Jesus to do one more thing. What is it that Jesus has to do to demonstrate that he's worthy of all of your worship? 
What more does Jesus have to do for us to demonstrate that he is God in the flesh? What more does Jesus have to do for us to help us understand that surrender is your next move? Nobody has ever resisted God and come out a winner. Nobody has ever surrendered to God and lived to regret it. So why do we fight and wrestle with God? I wish I was talking just about the Pharisees and the scribes, but oh, I see myself too much in the pages of Scripture. You know as well as I do that the big battle that's raging in your life and mine is a battle for the surrender and giving up of your own rights and your own privileges and your own comfort and convenience for the glory and the kingdom of God. What is it that God has to do in your business before you will give your business to him? Does he have to do anything else to show that you can trust him with your business? In fact, many of us have gotten into trouble with our business because we didn't surrender the business to him in the first place. Can I get an amen for that? What else does God have to do in your career? Ironically, your career, as if it's only yours, before you will fully trust Jesus with your career. What additional hoop are we asking God to jump through before we will take our next step in the journey of repentance? Because that's what this passage is all about. It's about a group of people who refused to repent when there was certifiable history, examples of other people repenting under far less grand circumstances. And here is the almighty son of God, God in the flesh, walking among them, having already performed miracle after miracle, demonstrating his power, demonstrating his authority, demonstrating his identity. And what do these people want? Just one more thing, Jesus. Can you just do one more thing? Can anybody identify with that? That we want Jesus to do just one more thing before we will. It's, doesn't it sound absurd that we debate with God and we wrestle with God and we get out the hula hoop and we say, Jesus, just this one more thing when Jesus says no. It's an evil generation that asks me to do something that I don't need to do. And Jesus says, no sign except the sign of Jonah. And where do we get the insight into what that sign was? In Matthew chapter 11. Look with me. At Matthew chapter 11, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. See, this isn't just a one-time occurrence, this request for a sign. It's repeated. It's repeated then in Jesus' life in real time, and it's repeated in your life and mine, if you're not careful, you will yield to the temptation to require something of Jesus that is not necessary in order for you to surrender to Jesus. Jesus does not need to do one more thing for you or for me. He does not need to do one more thing. He's already done it. 
teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Verse 39, Matthew 11, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. What is adultery other than to have affections and split interests? An adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And here it is, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think you're smarter than Jesus? I know many of us watch, are you smarter than a sixth grader? These days, probably not. The sixth grader is probably a lot smarter than me. But are you smarter than Jesus? Because here Jesus seems to very clearly authenticate the story of Jonah and the big fish. Quote unquote experts debate, well that's not even possible. We don't know of any fish that could hold a man inside of it for three days and then spit it out. That's a fictitious story, just an allegory. Jesus doesn't seem to be taking it as an allegory. He seems to be authenticating the Old Testament account of Jonah and the big fish. And what happened with Jonah and the big fish? Jonah was a prophet called by God to preach a message of repentance to the people. And what did Jonah do? He ran. He said, no, I can't do that. And God says, you don't want to do it. Resistance to God is futile. He sends a big fish to swallow him up. And while Jonah's in the belly of this fish, he repents and he surrenders. He surrender again. The issue of surrender comes up very clearly. He surrenders to God. And as he surrenders to God, God has now all of him. God confirms his calling. The fish spits out Jonah. And Jonah goes and preaches the message of repentance to the people of Nineveh. And look with me at Jonah chapter 3, verse 5. Look what happens to the people. And the people of Nineveh believed God. What was Jonah's message? A message of repentance. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Jonah, just a mere mortal, a prophet of God, sent by God, a missionary, just like you and me. We're supposed to be people who proclaim the message of salvation that's found through Christ, the message of repentance. And Jonah preaches that message. The people of Nineveh repent from the least to the greatest. The whole lot of them repent in sackcloth and ashes. Now, the people there understood the message of repentance, but here, something greater than Jonah stands before them is Jesus, not a mere mortal. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm about to do the only thing that I need to do that will be the capstone on my entire ministry. I'm gonna raise from the dead. And the only thing that's different between the time that we live in now compared to the time in which this was written is time. That's the only thing that's different between us in the 21st century and this in the first century. The only difference is the amount of time that has passed. The resurrection is real. It actually happened that God confirmed the ministry, the message, the messianic identity of Jesus through the resurrection. You don't need him to do something else. In fact, is there anything that God can do greater than the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? Listen, I know that you're important. Your spouse knows that you're important. Your children know that you're important. Your boss knows that you're important or your employees know that you're important. Everybody knows that you're important, but let me help all of us understand 
you're not so important that Jesus or God the Father or the Holy Spirit or all three of them need to get together and do something greater than the resurrection to convince you and to convince me to take your next step in your walk with God. That's it. No sign greater than that. Your next step is surrender. My next step is surrender. Surrender is always the right choice. Whenever we don't surrender and we withhold something from God, we're losing time. We're like gerbils on wheels, spinning, exerting energy and time and effort. In many cases, money. You'll never get it back. Surrender is the right choice. And the people in Jonah's day, the people of Nineveh, repented when they had a lesser prophet. And they understood the hand of God on the, speaking through the mouth of Jonah, and they repented. And now somebody greater than that has come, and Jesus says, oh, you, you want me to perform a sign for who? You, I'm sorry, you want me to do something? To, the, the, the dealing with the legion wasn't enough for you? That wasn't enough for you to do that? The raising up of the people who were dead that I raised from the dead, they, they were dead as, you know, no brain waves, no heartbeat. That wasn't enough for you? The multiple casting out of the demons when the power was coming out for me and everybody who came to me was being healed, that wasn't enough for you? So none of this was enough for you. Not none of it. Well, I'll tell you what, the capstone's gonna be the resurrection. And that's all I'm giving you. I'm sorry, but... Jesus is not going to do something greater than the resurrection in your life and in mine to get you and to get me to take our next steps of surrender. His identity has been settled once for all, and that includes you. And so you, me, we have no excuse in withholding anything from God or saying before him, I don't know that I can surrender. Listen, when we don't want to surrender to Jesus, it's not because Jesus has not authenticated his identity. It's not because Jesus, the jury is still out on Jesus and he needs to do one more thing. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with one simple thing, the darkness inside of us that refuses to bow the knee and humble the heart and surrender. See, surrender should be the sweetest word in your vocabulary. If you make surrender the number one objective in your life, you won't care where God has you and why God has you there because guess what? That's not the real issue. The real issue in your life is not where you are, but who you are where you are. God wants to mature you and mature me to the point of where we don't care where we are or what we are doing. We only care how we are doing it. And when it is done with faith in Jesus, surrender to Jesus, you will graduate and be free from that heavy, deceptive burden that your identity is wrapped up in what you're doing. Your identity is wrapped up with what you've done, what you're about to do. No, your identity is wrapped up in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I've done it all. There's nothing greater than the resurrection coming in your life to convince you that Jesus is worthy of your next step of surrender. It's been done. 
So let's get busy surrendering to Jesus. Let's get busy trusting God with the next step that you know that he's asking you to take. As you read the word of God, Jesus is the safest bet you'll ever make. Safest bet you'll ever make. Take that step of surrender. Take the plunge. What God has been speaking to you about in your life, confirming through his word, is the safest place you could ever be. Jesus says, what is it with this generation? You want just one more thing, one more sign, one more wonder, one more miraculous outpouring, and then you're gonna what? You're gonna really believe me? In 1 Kings chapter 10, look with me. 1 Kings chapter 10, beginning in verse one. This is the story that Jesus is referring to. The queen of the south is one day going to rise up and condemn the people of that generation And in so doing, Jesus brings up two non-Jews, the queen of the south and the Ninevites. That's why Jonah didn't want to go to the Ninevites. They were not, quote, unquote, God's people. And these two non-Jewish groups of people are going to rise up and condemn the people whom God was coming to first through the message of Jesus because they would not repent when they had every opportunity. Look with me, 1 Kings chapter 10, verse one. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, a whole entourage with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. The testimony, witness of God was so strong that She was breathless. She said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. And look at this. Blessed be the Lord your God, not just any God, your God Solomon, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. And Jesus says somebody and something greater than the queen of the south is here. She recognized the hand of God through a mere mortal, and I might say a king who was not fully devoted to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The queen of the south then gave him, listen to this, for your retirement fund, 9,000 pounds of gold. Not bad. That's how much she was moved to repent and acknowledge the living and true God. And here is Jesus in the flesh having performed all of these miracles more than what the queen of the south saw, more than what the queen, Queen Sheba saw, more than all of that. And she was moved to repentance. And these people wanted one more thing, 
What is it that Jesus has to do in your life? What is the one thing that's hanging you up, that hangs me up, as if the Bible isn't true, as if the words and teachings and ministry of Jesus were not true, as if we need to be a little bit more convinced? What more does God have to do to persuade us that surrender is the right choice? Jesus says no sign's going to be given except the resurrection. And that happened 2,000 years ago. It's time to get busy with what? A lifestyle of repentance. Jesus said the reason why that they, would not, they could not see who Jesus was is because their hearts had a condition, their lives had a condition, their bodies were filled with darkness. And you know, darkness is the only thing that's gonna keep you from recognizing who Jesus is. Darkness is the only thing, if you tolerate it, If you tolerate it, that will keep you from taking your next step of surrender to God. It's what keeps me. When I have spiritual amnesia, it's what keeps me from believing that Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus is who the Bible says he is. Jesus is worthy of trust. He's worthy of your surrender. How much surrender? Just a little bit more. The reason why God gave you a business is not for any other reason than to glorify God. The reason why God gave you a marriage is not for any other reason than the glory of God. And when you glorify God in your marriage, you're happy. When you glorify God in your business, you're happy. The reason why God has put you in a position of influence in your neighborhood or at the job, at the workplace, is so that you could declare the glory of God with your lifestyle. And the problem of these people, because they were evil, this generation was evil, the problem is that they weren't willing to do what the Queen of the South did, which was acknowledge the living and true God. They weren't willing to do what the people of Nineveh did, which is repent, when they had something far less than what was standing before them. What Jesus says to you and what Jesus says to me is that I am worthy of your trust. I'm worthy of your admiration. I'm worthy of your surrender. I'm worthy of all that you are. You don't need me to do one more thing before you take your next steps. It's all about repentance. It's all about surrender. That's the way we glorify God. That's the way you glorify God. It's evil. It's bad. It's nasty and it's gnarly when we ask God to do anything other than what he's already done as a precondition before we take our next steps with him. You've done it. I've done it. You might be doing it now. How about giving it up? and getting on with the greatest pursuit of life that you could ever pick up, which is the worship and the adoration of the living and true God with your entire life. Life is happening, my friends. It's happening right now. And God wants the life of Christ flowing out of you, emanating out of you, making surrendered decisions that glorify Jesus, that is the journey of a lifetime. 
You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm-hmm.